A couple of weeks ago, I was away for a few days at my family reunion in the Outer Banks. We were in Kerala, where the horses are, although I saw no horses. Now, my family has done this every year since 1966. Mind you, we haven't always gone to the beach. For years, my family would reune, is that a, is that a word? Uh, at a place co- that was, we called the camp. It was a camp in Western Maryland that was on a river. And as most family reunions go, we have our own weird traditions. Some we still keep up, like our loving cup, which everyone drinks out of the same cup, and we probably all get sick at the end of it. But <laughs> I saw someone react like, Ew, that is... <laughs> it's a little weird. My wife is still figuring out what it's all about. Um, but some we, we don't do anymore, like the great tubing race on the river at the camp. Now, I don't actually remember reunions at the camp. I was too young, but I'm told they were fun, and I told that the highlights of reunions at the camp was the great tubing race. Now, calling it a race is really generous um, because there was only one person there who actually thought of it as a race and thought that there were winners. And that one person was my older brother, who was 11 at the time, To the rest of the members of the family, they just wanted to take their time to get down the river, maybe enjoy a beverage or two along the way. I would know nothing about that. In fact, there was really only one rule of the great tube race and that you weren't allowed to paddle or propel yourself in any way. That was the one rule. You just had to float along the river at whatever speed the river carried you. Well, one year, my mom's cousin brought her boyfriend to the reunion, and he heard about this great tubing race, and he was determined to win. He was determined to end my older brother's winning streak. The morning of the race came, and the tubes were all lined up at the start. They were told to go, and immediately, my cousin's boyfriend takes off paddling down the river. He broke the one rule of tube race. My older brother was defeated and dejected. He cheated, he cheated, he paddled, my older brother claimed. And I will tell you, to this day, if you bring up this particular member of the family to my older brother, even though 30 years have passed, the first thing out of his mouth will be, he cheated at the tube race. That's a long story about races and winning and prizes. This morning, Paul is going to... Am I still here? Yes. This morning, Paul is going to restate and put a nice bow on a number of things that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. He's going to introduce some new metaphors and concepts, but they're all getting at the same points that he's been talking about for a while, namely how Christians ought to behave in the world and why. Last week, we talked about how our salvation, our adoption into God's family, comes not through outward signs like circumcision or Torah observance or church membership or adult profession of faith, but through the grace and love and work of God in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about how in a world where Torah accomplishes our salvation, he had it made in the shade, but he was willing to give that up 
to live in a world where grace and mercy and forgiveness abound. He's willing to trade in his former status to glory in the salvation found in the resurrection of Christ. What he's doing in the first part of the chapter, in the first part of chapter three, is a more explicit version of what he was doing in the first part of chapter two. He might be approaching things from different angles, but what we are talking about here is the centrality of Christ to Christianity, to our salvation, and really to all of reality. Today, we are going to see Paul talk about the difference that this ought to make in our lives, how we ought to live as those who have been adopted into God's family. On the one hand, the transition is a bit jarring. Paul has just gone on a nice rant about how actions and works aren't the basis of our faith or our salvation. And now, Paul is going to talk about how we are to live, how we are to act as people of faith. But Paul is trying to live in a faithful, happy medium, median, middle, that balances faith and works by talking about good works done in light of our faith. God works, therefore we can work. God works, therefore we must work. I feel like I've heard that somewhere. Let's turn to Paul's words in the third chapter of Philippians. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to be taken hold of, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now I see four distinct movements and concepts in this section from Paul. We're going to be talking about what it means to run the race, hence the video clip from Cars. What it means to live up to what we have already attained. The enemies of the cross of Christ and where our citizenship is. Those are our four things before us today. Let's get to it. First thing is the race. Not that I've already obtained all this, Paul says, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on 
to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, admittedly, I'm not sure why I keep using the word race here when Paul doesn't use it himself. Uh, It was in the commentaries I read, and I had so convinced myself that this word existed in this, this section of Scripture that I just kept talking about a race and race and race. And then I went back and reread it, and no one there. I don't know why. Uh, perhaps it's because this is not the only place that Paul uses an athletic metaphor for the Christian life in his letters, and in other places he explicitly calls it a race. But I think the biggest reason why is because of the way he talks about the task is the same way that I feel about running. When I'm running long distances, I can't think about how far I've already come. Two months ago, I ran my 11th half marathon, which is something I would never thought that I'd say up until like a few years ago. And frankly, it's something my family doesn't believe to be true about me. They think I'm lying. I, I have a lot of, I have some medals to prove it. But when I've run four or five or six miles and still have like seven or eight to go, you can't think about what it is to run four or five or six miles. You can't think about how far you've already gone. When you hit mile 10, you can't think about how hard it is to run 10 miles. You, can, you have to think about what you have left in the race. If you're at mile 10, you have to be focused on pushing it more and more for the next 3.1 miles. Because everything in a long race is about pressing forward not thinking about what you've already done. The reason for this should be pretty obvious. We can't think about how far we've come because thinking about what we've already done encourages us to rest, to downshift. If I'm thinking about how I've run 10 miles and how far 10 miles is and how hard it is to run 10 miles, I'm then thinking about how I should slow down. I mean, it's tiring. I'm pretty tired. Let's idle back a bit and relax, make sure we have enough to get through. When you start to put how far you've gone out of your mind and only focus on what you have left to do, you keep pushing, keep pressing until you hit that finish line. It's the same thing for our spiritual lives. If we think about who we used to be, what we used to do, we can start to feel pretty good about ourselves. We can start to celebrate who we are based on who we were. And those next things that we have to work on don't seem so urgent. But if long-distance running and races can be a metaphor for our spiritual lives, what's the finish line? What's our goal? What is the prize that Paul is talking about? For that, we need to keep going. Let us live up to what we have already attained. Paul says that all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. I can't decide if if this 
if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you is like a, well, God has given you a special revelation that you are, you're better thinking than me. Or if he's like, oh, don't worry, be patient. God will make you see things my way. There's a part of me that really likes the second version of it. Just, I digress, sorry. Paul says that we should live up to what we have already attained. And I think that that is precisely the finish line. That is what we are striving towards, to be who we already are. Now, this is intentionally cryptic, but hey, we're talking theology. Theology is intentionally cryptic by nature. But this is what we're talking about. Through the work of Christ, we are adopted into God's family. Through the resurrection of Christ, we have a sure hope that we have a place in God's eternal kingdom. When God's work of reconciliation and renewal is done on this earth, we have a share in that new heaven and new earth. Which means that if we are to exist in God's holy and eternal kingdom, we too will one day be holy and eternal ourselves. There's going to come a time when we are holy and perfect just as God is holy and perfect. What we are talking about here is the intersection of salvation, sanctification, and eschatology, using big words to prove that I made the most of my education. Now, forgive me for being pedantic, but what I mean by that is that we are talking about how our eternal salvation relates to the continuing work that God's grace is doing in us to make us good and righteous people, and how that relates to our place in the kingdom of God that will last for eternity and be revealed at the end of time. That's a long sentence. My apologies. And, that, and this is what Paul is saying. If you and I are granted a place in God's eternal kingdom, we can only be there if we are holy and righteous as God is holy and righteous. But I don't know about you, but I know that I am not holy and righteous as I stand here before you. But here's the thing. When we talk about eschatology, when we talk about God's eternal kingdom, when we talk about the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, these are both present and future realities. The resurrection of Christ tells us that God's eternal kingdom is both promised and future, hoped for and assured. So now finally, what Paul is saying is that there is a version of you that will exist in God's kingdom that is perfect, holy, righteous, fully sanctified. But not only will that version exist in God's kingdom, but since God's kingdom is present as well as future, that version already exists. Some way. Somehow. That perfect, holy, righteous, fully sanctified version of you already exists in God. And Paul is saying that those of us who are pressing onward, those of us who have our eyes fully fixed on Jesus, have as our goal to be that version of ourselves that already exists in God in Jesus Christ. While I find that a bit confusing, I also find it comforting. But I'll have to leave it at that for now because we must turn to why it is that we aren't already that version of ourselves. And that has something to do with these enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just 
as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Paul switches gears abruptly to talk about the enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ, and he describes them in great yet cryptic detail. Commentaries I read on this passage described two different groups he could be addressing. The first group is that same group of Judaizers we talked about last week. The argument is that the references to God being their stomach and their glory and their shame are veiled yet scathing references to strict adherence to food laws and the importance given circumcision. If this were the case, this is possibly the most inflammatory language Paul would use in any of his letters to describe Jewish influences on the early church. The other group that it could be is precisely the opposite. Those that live a lavish lifestyle with no regard for holy living or morality. This is particularly convincing given the amount of upper-class Romans and Greeks that lived in Philippi. Both of these groups represent ideologies that Paul argues against in most of his other letters and groups that we have touched on in prior weeks. But I want to talk about them in a particular light, given the particular words that Paul uses here. Namely, I want to ask why either group's ideology would make them enemies of the cross of Christ. For groups that talk about the salvific importance of Torah observance, food laws, or circumcision, they minimize the cross of Christ. They minimize its importance and its power. They actively work against its meaning. Because if on the cross Jesus accomplishes all things necessary for our atonement, then nothing else is necessary. That's kind of the definition of all. So if you're putting further barriers, impediments to others' relationship with Christ, you're working against the salvific power of the cross. Now, the other side, those who live indulgent lifestyles are enemies of the cross of Christ because they outright deny its victory. You see, there were those in early Christian communities who said that the grace of God had set them free so that they were free to do anything and everything that they wanted. No more sin, no more shame, right? Well, taken to an extreme, it means that I can do whatever I want and just be forgiven of it. It's not how grace works. But we forget that on the cross, Jesus defeated sin. But that doesn't mean that things aren't sinful anymore. If there's no sin, then there's no victory on the cross. When we try to use Jesus to give, us, to give license to behaviors that we know are bad for us, we deny that the cross has any meaning whatsoever. But what I want us to notice before we move on is that these enemies of the cross aren't just people or groups or ideas outside of the Christian church. These are groups and ideas that operate both within and outside of the church. The enemies of the cross of Christ are not just a secular world or a godless society. They can be people that claim to speak for Jesus, 
and are a part of a church. It should give any of us that claim to speak for Jesus and are part of a church a little bit of fear and trembling, as I fear and tremble. But how do we avoid this? How do we avoid ourselves being an enemy of the cross? Simply put, it comes from knowing where our citizenship is. Paul immediately continues with, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. For us, that claim doesn't sound so bold because we have had the fortune of living in a society where being a Christian and being a citizen of our nation weren't mutually exclusive and might even go hand in hand. But for Paul, a Roman citizen himself, to make this claim in the early first century was scandalous. To be a Roman citizen in the first century was to be protected. It was to be privileged. It was to be secure. It was said that you could go from one end of the Roman Empire to the other without fear of being hurt or touched or robbed, which in those days, a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho was a dangerous adventure. You could go from Spain to Jerusalem having no fear of personal injury, clothed only in the fact that you were a Roman citizen. And if you were a Roman citizen, the most important thing about you was that fact. It served as the ground of your identity. It was the most important thing about you. Paul is now saying that safety and security, protection and privilege, the ground of our identity come not from Roman citizenship, because Paul himself was a Roman citizen, but from our citizenship in heaven. The most important thing about us isn't that we are Romans or Americans, but that we are adopted into God's family. The most important thing about us isn't what rights we gain from the Constitution, but what we gain from our baptism. How do we press on? How do we become who we already are in Jesus Christ? How do we avoid being enemies of the cross of Christ? By recognizing where our citizenship is. By recognizing where our identity comes from. By knowing who is our savior and who isn't. By understanding that the most important thing about us, the most important label we can give ourselves, has nothing to do with our Americanness, our nationality, our job, our education, our family. The most important thing about us is that we are followers of Jesus Christ. We press on by devoting all we have to Jesus Christ. We press on by letting go of anything that holds us back. We become who we already are in Jesus Christ by laying aside all the other images and versions of ourselves that exist and focusing only on the version of ourselves in God. What would it mean for us to do this? What would it mean for us to live as a colony of heaven? What would it mean for you to picture yourself as a colonist of God's kingdom? A colonist's job is to go and build a colony and to expand the colony 
and to help the colony thrive and grow? How would you live differently if you knew it was your responsibility to bring and build more of the kingdom of God here in our midst? Stand firm in the Lord, dear friends, for our Savior will come and transform us and this world into the glorious kingdom of God. And now that we already live in that kingdom, and know, and know that we already live in that kingdom, that we are residents and citizens of the eternal, the eternal kingdom of God. Mangle in this ending here. Let's go from this place. Let's go and expand the colony. Let us pray. Almighty and all-living God, not by any work or effort on our part, not by anything that we can say or do or know or think, not by anything intrinsically about us, but by your love and your mercy and your grace and the work done on our behalf by your son, Jesus Christ. You have made us citizens of your kingdom. You've made us sons and daughters in your family. Help us to take that amazing news. Help us to stand firm in that amazing news. Help us to find the ground of our identities in that amazing news. Then help us press on. As we go from, these, from this place, as we go from these times of encountering you, as we go from these moments where we encounter your grace and know that it's real and know that we are part of your family, help us take those moments and leave from here and press on towards building more and more of your colony in our midst. Help us press on in a world where there are enemies of the cross of Christ. Help us press on in a sinful and hurting and dying world that desperately needs your life. Help us press on so that we can build more and more of your kingdom here and so that we can become who we already are in your eyes. All this we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You stand up. You made us for much more than this, God. Awake the kingdom seed in us and fill us with the strength and love of Christ. We are the church, and our calling from God is to build that church, to build the kingdom, and share the love. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church. We need your power in us. We seek your kingdom first. We hunger and we thirst. We refuse to waste our lives for 
benediction. Um, we have a prayer team that meets each and every week in the room at the back of the auditorium. So if you want to pray for others or be prayed for yourself, they would love to have you there. We don't have a formal time of offering here at Spirit and Life. Um, God doesn't want just your money. God wants your whole lives. But money is a part of your life, and your financial giving makes possible the mission and ministries of Spirit and Life. So there's an offering basket in the back if you would like to make a financial contribution. Also, there's a green card in your lifeline that I forgot to mention, uh, is how we keep track of, of first-time visitors and, and, and just even if you've come here a million times. Um, so fill that out, drop that in the offering basket as well. Receive these words of benediction. Go from this place as those adopted into God's family, as those granted a place in God's kingdom, to build more of God's kingdom here on earth. Go from this place as a colonist of heaven to expand the colony of heaven here on earth. And as you do, know that our God, the living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit goes with you now and abides with you always. Amen. Build your kingdom here Let the darkness fear Show your mind